You know, it's uh, amazing when we seem focus on the Lord, what He's done, that it does something to us. We stop looking within ourselves, right? We don't make songs about us, about how lovable we are, how awesome we are, but we really reflect on the God, the Creator, the, the one true God controls every atom, every molecule. And he knows you. He knows each and every one of us. He knows his children. Jesus says, no one will snatch them from my hand. How great thou art. That just does something to me. It, it, it changes even my mood. Uh, this morning, right? It's a beautiful reminder. We're going to be in Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1 this morning. I think it's a section that fits well together. Uh, if you were here with us for the first time worshiping with Christ's Covenant Fellowship, um, I am happy you are here. Uh, we are glad you are at this gathering of CCF. Uh, my name is Tyler Cash. I serve as one of the pastors of this beautiful church, and um, happy that you're with us. Uh, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, we've been here for about 12, 13 weeks now. Uh, we have a few weeks left. Uh, it's been a great encouragement, I know, to myself, to me, as I've been studying and growing more, uh, as this is just a super practical letter. Uh, Paul just gets very practical here. I, I love the, the, the easy application, especially with our current cultural climate. But let's read verses 17 through... Four, one. Philippians 3, 17 reads this. Read from the ESV. It says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my love. We pray. Father God, you are, you are great, you're awesome, you're mighty, and that you would save us. 
that you would send your son to die in our place so that we may obtain the righteousness of Christ, obtain the, the glory that is to be found in eternity with you. Father, help us today as we look at your word to give you the praise that you deserve. May any who are far off, Lord, would you draw them to the throne of mercy through Christ? Would you help to change us, move us, propel us towards worship? Father, we need your help. I need your help, God. Father, I ask that what we know not, teach us what we have not you give us what we are not you make us for your glory by your grace in Christ's name as people said amen well, last week we looked at verses 12 through 16 in chapter 3 we saw Paul turn his attention towards exhorting his reader towards the pursuit of Christ's likeness if you remember, he uses this illustration of an athlete who is pressing on, who is straining forward towards the goal of the prize. And we talked about the prize is, is Jesus. The, the prize is Christ himself. The prize is eternity with our Savior. Imperfection, like something we can't even fathom. And here in this next portion of this text, Paul writes to this church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul, he continues to appeal to his reader of the importance of this pursuit of Christ. He's going to reiterate the idea that the pursuit is meant to do together. That was what we left off with last week, that uh, our pursuit of Christ is meant to do in community, right? God, God's idea of the church uh, isn't a, a, just a, a, just something that we can consider and, and maybe we might participate. No, God calls us together to do this in community. What Paul does in these verses that we just read and we're going to look at today, is he gives this really stark contrast between two categories of people. Um, and then... What the contrast is, it's not one of little significance. It's one that is a stark contrast of eternal value. There's a major difference in these two groups, and it's not a little difference. And it has extreme eternal value. Uh, that's the title of today's message, uh, kind of the, the framework. We'll look at the lens. We will evaluate this text is that a stark contrast of eternal value? For anyone who doesn't know, uh, the word contrast just means very different, right? It's just something that is different. Uh, if you've got your, you know, a TV or something, a screen, you can adjust the contrast. And uh, sometimes, you, you know, it's the brightness or different levels, the darkness. And the, the goal is to enhance the appearance, to, to see things clear. We want it to have better definition. 
We want to see what's happening in better life. That's, that's Paul's point here. That's his goal as he paints this very clear picture of these two groups of people. I mean, Paul doesn't leave any room for question. He leaves no room for wondering what he's talking about. Verses 17 through 18 Paul tells the church in Philippi that there are these two groups of people within the environment that they're walking in, the community that they live. First, we see imitators of Christ. You see that in verse 17. Look there with me. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So here we see Paul encouraging these brothers and sisters to imitate Paul and others who were worth imitating. Uh, this is similar to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 where he says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. It wasn't necessarily Paul who, uh, they, you know, the, the exact thing that Paul was doing, but he was pressing on toward the goal of Christ, right? The goal in our Christian life is to always follow those who follow Christ. Follow Christ. See, we are very impressionable people, right? Yes, you are. I am. We, we are impressionable people. We're influenced by those around us. You spend enough time with somebody, all of a sudden they start rubbing off on you, or you start talking like them, you, you start doing the things that they do. Maybe it's uh, someone that has a, a good influence and sometimes it could be something that has a negative influence on us. We're, we're very impressionable. Uh, the things we watch, things that we watch on TV, the movies, the shows you may watch, the different things that we fill our minds with leave an impression on us. Everything that you do, things we read, Right? Maybe you like to read novels or they leave an impression. They're shaping us in some way, shape, or form. Here Paul calls us to intentionally, right? He doesn't just say like, okay, it, it could happen. No, he calls them to intentionality. I've said this uh, probably for the last three or four weeks, but the, the Christian life is not just some mindless uh, to-do. It's not just an absent-minded pursuit of of, of faith in this unknown. We're called to use our minds. We're, we're, we're called to engage, to be active. Paul says, be intentional. Aim to imitate those who imitate Jesus Christ. Be intentional. Notice Paul says, the example you have in us. Uh, this is likely a reference to uh, Epaphroditus and Timothy, whom Paul had personally, well, Timothy, we know, Paul had personally discipled. Uh, he had raised up, called him a son in the faith. He had affirmed them in this letter already. So he's saying, uh, remember us, like imitate us because we are imitating Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you as we journey through this life, as you journey, find people that are pursuing Christ to imitate. 
Find people that you can surround yourself with that will encourage you towards the pursuit of Christ. That will call you out on your junk. That will call you out when you're, when, you, when, you, when you're not pursuing Christ. When you're, when you're distracted over here. Those people are helpful. I know I need them in my life. You need them in yours. But remember, Paul isn't suggesting that he's perfect here. He's not saying, like, I've got it all together. Uh, you know, I've got this thing figured out to so, so do what I do. Remember, uh, he just said in uh, verse 12, I'm not perfect. Remember what he says a little few verses earlier? He says, he, he's saying that I'm not perfect. I haven't figured this out. But I am striving towards the pursuit of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that should be an encouragement to us. Like, you don't have to have it all figured out. You, in discipleship, when you teach others, and we talked about that uh, uh, with our values, right? We want to be a church that is committed to discipleship, to encouraging one another, to digging in God's word together, to living life together in community and fellowship with one another. But don't think you have to wait until you arrive before you start to disciple or mentor others. There's no place in Scripture for perfection except for Christ. Amen? Amen. Christ is our, it's our goal. It's all Him. And while we do life together, we need others to, to band arms with and to, to journey along. I might stumble sometime, you might stumble, but along the way we will pick each other up. But it's all towards Christ. And he tells his reader, this type of people, these are the ones that they should focus on and follow. And so this leads us with two questions, right? One, are we living a life that's worth imitating? Are, are you living, am, am I living a life that is worth imitating? And, and if we aren't living a life that's worth imitating, are we really imitating Christ? Are we really following him? I mean, if someone followed you around, someone followed you around for you know, 48 hours, 72 hours a week maybe, right? What, what impression would they get? What would they say are your priorities? And this is a question that I ask myself all the time. As I get distracted in things, and as I different things take precedence, and I check my heart, I ask the Lord, I would encourage us all to do that. I mean, would they say, hey, man, that brother says they love Jesus, they follow Christ, or would they be left wondering? Would they be left confused with your words and your actions, saying, well, two totally different things. I encourage you all, make imitating Christ your aim, and then share your life with others. Encourage brothers and sisters that are, that are step behind, right? You need someone that's a step ahead that you can imitate. You find someone that's a step aside that you can just journey with. 
and find someone that's a step behind that you can encourage, that you can disciple, you can mentor. Look, that wasn't just a, a good idea in 1900 or some uh, years ago when, when, when Paul writes this. This is applicable today. We need this now. We need this today. Here in this letter, Paul exhorts his reader, follow my example, follow others' examples, but it's always those who are imitating Christ. That is a first group of people that we see, those that are imitating Jesus. The second group Paul tells us here, like I said, he's, he's laying it out very clearly. It's not a lot of question left here. And he says that this other group is totally different. They are a different category. They are enemies of Christ. So we have imitators of Christ. We have enemies of Christ. Look at verse 18. It says, For many of whom I have often told you and I now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, apparently Paul has said this before. He's saying, I, I, I've often told you. Now this shows this, this group who walks in stark contrast is they're a lot different. And, and Paul's walk and their walk is, is totally different. And apparently this group is having a negative influence on the church because he's told them before. He's saying, hey, remember I told you. Paul isn't happy to say this, right? I mean, Paul's not like... Uh, he, he's not excited about this idea that there are people that are enemies of Christ. I think there's many different reasons for that. I mean, he says here, he says, I, I'm saying it now, like this time, it, it, it's, it's getting I'm saying this with tears. You know, when we think of others that may not be pursuing Christ, it should bring us towards a means of compassion. We should be burdened for their souls. We should care about, one, the worship of our Savior, and two, the lives of those who don't follow him as Lord. Paul says here, I'm sad. It's like I say this through tears. Uh, this group here in this particular context, in this situation, it could have been a, a few different. We don't get exact. Uh, the, he doesn't say exactly who this is. Uh, it could be the people that Paul warns about at the beginning of the chapter when he says, watch out for the dogs, the mutilators, the, the evildoers that he talks about, the Judaizers. Um, it could be some scholars think that it were people that were once a part of the church that were swayed away by some of the popular ideas of their time. He says this could be those. Some commentators, some scholars think that it could just be those that may walk in a, a general different way, right? Just those that are not following Christ, that are contrary, that are living lives that are contrary to the self-sacrificing life that Christ has called us to, right? They're just going in on their own way. Uh, we're going to look here at some uh, descriptions of them. But the text doesn't tell us exactly why, 
who these people are, but what we do know is Paul doesn't take this casually. He's not making this indictment on these people of, of, of small significance. And he's not doing it with malicious intent either. He's more. Verse 19, Paul gives a description of this group. He says, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. So let's look at these three terms. It gives us a little bit more uh, idea, better idea, better picture of who these folks are. Number one, he says, their God is their belly. Uh, here, the word belly would uh, refer metaphorically to kind of the feelings or desires of the inward life, right? You know, your, your belly starts to grumble. You, you want food. You want something. You, you, you want to eat. Uh, Romans 16, 18, Paul describes people who are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. He uses this kind of same language here. Uh, that literally means their, their stomachs. It means that they're pursuing something that they want. So in its simplest form, this uh, their God is their belly would mean this. For those who have no higher authority, so they're, they're not looking anywhere else for the way they live. And it the way that they live is dictated by their own appetites, by the things they want. They do whatever pleases them. They don't look to the Lord. They don't follow God's plan, desires. They live in direct disobedience to our Lord. And he goes on, he says that their glory is in their shame. They even glory in the fact that they are rebellious. So not only do the enemies of Christ do whatever pleases them, they take pride in their shameful activities. Brothers and sisters, do we not see this rampant in our culture? I mean, it's not consistent with, with Hollywood with the, the ways that they portray these people that get famous for nothing, for evil, for, for doing things that are contrary to the word of God. But we see this over and over and over. People literally get famous for shameful acts. It says also that their minds do this stuff because their minds are set on earthly things, right? They're not, they're not thinking about God. They're not thinking about anything. They, their minds are set on the things of the earth, the core of the problem is because they have set their minds on the things of this world. Let that be a reminder to us. Should we always keep in mind that the things of this world are fleeting? Here today, gone tomorrow. I mean, updates if you done with your phone, right? I mean, constantly updated, new stuff. We need stuff. 
We need new, we need better, we need this idea, we need to fit in here, we need respect to these people, we need these people to like me. Oh, I better not offend them. Need more money, right? Need more things. Core of this group's problem is that they have set their mind on the things of this world, not on the things of God. They want everything the world has to offer. They, they, they've made it their conviction to, let me accumulate everything that the world can give. Paul says, look, there's no middle ground here. Paul says that these folks, this group, they're enemies the cross of Christ. It's very similar to our Savior's words in Luke 16, 13, where he says, you cannot serve God and money. You can't serve them both. Not saying that money is bad. Not saying that you shouldn't desire to, to, to uh, provide but anything that you get, anything you have is a gift from God. He can take it like that. Anything. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to use every gift of God for his glory. Everything. Do not waste your life trying to accumulate the stuff this world. Paul makes it clear. He says either their God is their belly, they follow, they pursue their desires, or they will consider it all lost because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ, as he said earlier. I mean, that's what he's called them to imitate, right? He said, count it all as lost, rubbish, it's dumb. Be done with it. If it hinders your pursuit of Jesus, eternity with him, living a life that is worth imitating, cast it aside. Paul doesn't leave us hanging there. He doesn't say, well, just, just do that. He says there's a reason for that, right? He, he gives the why. You know, sometimes, you know, kids, they're like, why? Why? You know, kids ask why. Sometimes it's good to, like, give them the why. Like, hey, this is why. A lot of times parents want to say, because I said so. You know, after the third or fourth time, it's kind of like, just stop, you know? But sometimes it's good, right? We want to give them the why. We want to help them to think. Help them to think and to understand why we're saying what we're doing. And Paul does the same thing here. Paul, Paul gives us this uh particular outcome or, or really con consequence, uh, rather, that we'll use the word consequence, right? Consequence, uh, every action has a consequence. We usually use it in a negative sense, right? There'll be a consequence for your action. Well, every action has a consequence. Some are negative, some are positive. There are good consequences, there are bad consequences. And here we see that there are two very different consequences. There are two different outcomes for these groups of people. And he says that they have eternal significance. Eternal significance. Paul tells us that those who are enemies of Christ are bound for destruction. Look back at verse 19. I mean, Paul clearly says, 
Therein is destruction. The Greek word used here is the same word used by our Savior in Matthew 7, 13, where he says to enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. It leads to destruction. He says those that enter that gate, there's many. It's easy. It's an easy walk. He says, but, this is Jesus in verse 14 of Matthew 7, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And Paul here is just reiterating this truth and he's reminding his reader that our actions and our choices in this world matter. They matter. And, and here, this particular choice, this particular action, the way they live has eternal value. But we must take heed to Paul's words here and take seriously the truth that those who follow the desires of their flesh and fail to follow Jesus Christ as Lord, that's a little side note, you don't make him Lord, he is Lord. We don't make him Lord of our life. He's Lord. We follow him or we don't. He is Lord. And those that don't follow him as Lord, their fate is destruction. And family, this should cause us to pause and reflect on first our own lives, each and every person in here. When are you following Christ? Are you following Jesus Christ, have you trusted his work on your behalf? Are you pursuing him with all that you have? But then this should compel us to evangelize. This should compel us to share the good news of salvation in Christ. Uh, there's a quote I want to read for you. I've always said that I don't respect people who proselytize. That just means shares the gospel. He says, I don't respect that at all. <clears throat> he says, if you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself he goes on he says how much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize them to not share the good news of Jesus he says how much do you hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that I'm still quoting here. He says, I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and, did, and you didn't believe that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I would tackle you. And you're saying this is more important than that. Unquote. That's a quote from atheist 
Uh, Penn Gillette, right? The magician duo, Penn and Teller. They've been around for years. He's an atheist. He, he says this quote from a point of view that is even, I mean, just totally different than where we stand, right? He says, if, if you really believe this stuff and you're not telling people about it, then shame on you. If you really believe, then you should be compelled. We should all be compelled to share the good news with each and every person that we have the opportunity to. Church, we know the truth, right? I mean, we've got the hope, we've got the answers. Our job is to share it. Because look, it's not the end of this passage, right? Praise God. It's not the end of this passage, but it's just destruction. That's not the only consequence. There's a positive consequence for those that do follow Christ. We see this stark contrast in verses 20 through 21. Let me read this for us. Look at it if you have it in front of you. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we see that one path leads to destruction and the other path leads to transformation. And praise God. Aren't you glad God didn't leave you how he found you? If you're not, then you don't know the depravity of your sin. Praise God that he transforms us, makes us new he says in verse 21, who will transform our lowly body? That's got some present implications as well as eternal implications. See, the promise and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are being made new day by day. We're being sanctified. He's transforming us. He's making us new one day we will be made fully new as we are fully transformed and glorified to our final state of being. This is the, the doctrine of glorification, that we will be glorified one day. Uh, one commentator uh, kind of defines it like this. The glorification of the Christians if you, if you ever wonder what glorification is, here, take this. It says, the glorification of the Christian is that we shall share in God's glory when we are in our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth, experiencing deeper fellowship with God and not being at risk of falling into sin. Praise God for that. 
says, God's glory finally being all in all. See, understanding glorification for Christians begins with understanding the glory of God. We must understand who this God is. And then we must understand our incomparable the greatness in which God dwells, and then how his creatures dwell. See, humanity has been marred by sin, right? We're retaining it. We see it in our world around us every single day. We see it in ourselves every single day. Spend some time alone with yourself. We know that we are marred by sin. And because of our sin, we have been separated from God in, in two ways in our sinful state apart from Christ. One, we're separated because we are not creators. We are creatures. We are the created. There's a difference. And then there are effects of sin on our nature. There are then two parts of kind of glorification, the way God changes us, the Holy Spirit working in us to transform us, to prepare us for eternity with our Savior. The first part of our glorification is our dying to sin in this life and our eventual death in this body. We all know that we will not be here in this state forever. And we all, as believers, should know that we should be killing sin daily. That the Lord is working in and through us, making us new, changing us, transforming us, renewing our minds. And the second part, so there's death in the body, but praise God, we are raised to new life. In a new body with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. We will live with God. We're going to live with God in the perfect restoration of all things. We're going to live with God. We'll share in His glory. We'll enjoy deeper fellowship with one another than we can ever imagine. I was having a conversation, uh, a buddy of mine went fishing uh, this past uh, Friday. And he catch anything, we were musky fishing. That's another thing, right? But we were just, we we're on the way to go eat. We were talking about barbecue with our fishing guide. And just, I, I was pondering, right? And just like, how much better will, will fishing be? Right, is there, is there going to be fishing in heaven? I believe so. It'll be a, a catch on every cast, right? Will it be barbecue? Will it be good food? Will it be fellowship? Yes, every single enjoyment of this life is a foretaste, of just a, a minor foretaste. We can't even imagine what's to come. We will enjoy God. Ever. 
Well, it's a fellowship forever. John puts it like this in his epistle. He says, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall finally get to see him as he is. See, Christians, new bodies will be like Christ after his resurrection and be redesigned for eternity with God. I'm going to have a head full of hair, right? Flowing in Back won't hurt, not you know. Perfecting. All of our aches and pains, gone. I mean, here Paul shows us that those who follow Christ as Lord are not citizens of, of this world following the worldly things. Rather, they are citizens of heaven awaiting their heavenly Savior. If you remember, we talked a little bit about how the, the Roman emperors, how they viewed themselves, right? They viewed themselves as these kind of demigods, these, these saviors of Rome's empire, of Rome's citizens. The allegiance to them was fundamental for seeking a, a, a lavish and comfortable lifestyle. Remember, this is written to real people. And they are being hard-pressed, they're being squeezed to follow Caesar, make Caesar Lord. It was a constant theme in their culture. But here, Paul reminds these brothers and sisters, hey, you're not a citizen of Rome, you are a citizen of heaven. He encourages them to, to walk that way, to live that way. Because everything that Caesar claims he owns is counterfeit. It's all God's. Nothing Caesar can do. He's a counterfeit savior. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior. And who's that savior? The Lord Jesus Christ alone. He says he'll transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Jesus alone is Savior and Lord. Let us never forget that. Let us live in a way. Let us talk in a way. Let us spend our money in a way. Let us engage with one another in a way. Let us live in our neighborhoods in a way that always declares that Jesus is Lord. There's no substitute. See, Jesus shows his lordship in many ways. And here we even see his lordship over the counterfeit saviors because he does what they are powerless to do. He raises the dead. He transforms the believer's body of humility to be like or to be similar in form to the body of Christ's glory. This act of power in keeping with the fact that Christ has unparalleled power that enables him, as we read earlier, to subject all things to himself. Can, can you do that? I can't. And no one else can make that claim. See, unlike the kings of this world, Jesus rules everything. There's nothing that he does not have reign over. And Paul reminds us here that those that are his will indeed be changed and prepared 
for an eternity of ruling, reigning with him in his glory. Hey, look, heaven's not going to be sitting around on a cloud having angels like feed you grapes. Right? We're not going to turn into cupids or angels. There's a lot of weird stuff out there, weird thoughts. Right? We're going to be active. We engaging in different activities and living eternity. 10,000, when we've been there, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. Well, no less days to sing his praise than when it first began. I mean, sitting around for me for a little bit, it's boring. We are going to be with Jesus. Murray Harris writes in his classic study, Raise the Mortal. He says, Paul is saying then, referring to this passage, he says that in a place, in place of an earthly body that is always characterized by physical decay, indignity, and weakness, the resurrected believer will have a heavenly body that is incapable of deterioration, beautiful in form and appearance and with limitless energy and perfect health. Praise God for that, right? Brothers and sisters, let us take heed to Paul's reminder to the Romans. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The apostle John writes in Revelation when he's describing this eternity, he says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. He says, death shall be no more. He says, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and the angst, the pains, the sorrows of this world. And if you've been in it for any amount of time, you felt it. What a beautiful picture of our all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ, who meets our every need. And brothers and sisters, the question we must ask ourselves today is the most important question of all is, do I follow him? Is he Lord of my life? Have I submitted all rebellion and pursuit in pursuit of him? I mean, this is not some trivial question. It's not a trivial choice of insignificant value. Brothers and sisters, this has eternal value. Those who are Christ should gain confidence in this truth and be compelled every opportunity they have to share this good news. But Christ is Lord. Repent and believe the gospel. It's simple. Paul concludes this section, verse 4-1, with an exhortation to stand firm in this glorious truth. He says, stand firm. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And this is the most affectionate and endearing language that Paul uses anywhere in Scripture. I mean, he loved this church. He loved these brothers and sisters. He says, I long for, you're my joy, my crown. Says my joy. This is the thirteenth time he's used something of uh, the sense of my joy. In this note, says stand firm. Stand firm. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you. I hope for our church is that we would be a church that stands firm in this truth. That we would stand firm in the promise of the gospel. We would live it in our actions. That we really trust it. That we really believe it. That we would be compelled, be compelled to share it, to share the good news every opportunity that we have. And let it be an encouragement to anyone who struggling with their faith or doubting their faith that if you are secure in him you are secure forever Ephesians Paul tells the church in Ephesus that you are sealed with the spirit you're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit to seal it take that away from you. Be comforted in that truth. Listen to Jesus' words in John 17 where he prays the high priestly prayer. I'll close with this. He says, Father, this is Jesus praying for his disciples and praying for those that will follow. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let me encourage you that you are secure in Christ because of Christ. Because of God's love for Christ. We are in him. Not based on you. See, God's not going to go back on his promise to Christ. His promise to his people. He is faithful. Those that are in him can have confidence now until the day this body is fully decayed. And we see our Savior forever. Right.